Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Let's get going with the message. In the uh, first service this morning, I was talking about the idea, and again, this is just a recap. I was talking about the idea of the Lord being the God of many breakthroughs. David calls him the Lord of many breakthroughs, Baal Paratzim in Hebrew, uh, after a battle that he engages in in the Valley of the Rephaim. The story is found two places in Scripture. One of them is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, and the other one is in 1 Chronicles 14. We were looking at 1 Chronicles this morning. Because this is a recap, I'm not even going to read the passage. But I will say this, that the Philistines decided to pick a fight with David after he'd been made king. And, um, and they picked the choice. They had the choice, uh, since they picked the fight, of where it was going to happen. And they picked a valley that seems to have been, we'll say, spiritually active. It was radioactive, but it was active. Uh, because the Rephaim were, uh, they were another race of the giants. If you've ever heard of the Nephilim or you've been following any of the conversation about all that, uh, the Rephaim were yet another race of these ancient beings that seemingly are no more. Um, And so the Philistines decided to do it there. And David beat them not once but twice. And the first time that he beat them, he said, the Lord is the Lord of breakthroughs. And it's interesting, he doesn't use any of the normal names of God. He uses the name Baal, which sounds like the, the god Baal. We all know he's a bad guy. But, uh, but actually what he's doing is he's mocking the Philistines. He's saying, oh, you think your god's the Lord? My god's the Lord. And so he is the Lord of your Lord, and he is the Lord of many breakthroughs. Paratz is the word for breakthrough. Paratzim in Hebrew means multiple breakthroughs. And so David beat them down and defeated them. Well, you know, there's dumb and there's dumber, so they come back for another dose. And, uh, and the story goes on that the first time the Lord had said, hit him face on, just go straight at him and, and you'll win. And when he seeks the Lord, the second time the Lord says, change strategies. I want you to go around the back and I want you to attack him by the balsam trees. And by the way, don't just go after him from behind. Wait until you hear the sound of marching in the trees above you. And I pointed out that this presumably is an angelic army. It doesn't actually say that, but what else would it be? And so when you hear the angels going before you, we might say the heavenly air force, you know, when the fighter jets are going over, when the helicopters are going over, when the, you know, they're sort of blowing up the front lines of the enemy in the spirit, then you attack on the ground. Again, it doesn't say all that, but I'm just sort of unpacking it and using language that we're all familiar with uh, because of the adventures of the United States in the last 20 years or so. All right, so uh, David wins the second time, and the Philistines abandon their gods. The powers that had driven them are defeated. And so David says, great, round up all those idols and burn them. And then it says that the fame of David spread. Well, I mean, that's nice for David, but the real issue is the fame of the Lord in giving David these victories. And it doesn't say this, but implied in it is this was a rather improbable victory because it does say all of the Philistines. It was like a concerted effort. We're going to stop this guy in his tracks now while we can. Because remember, David was the king (coughs) who had one time been the right-hand man to Saul. And of Saul, they said he slew his thousands, but David slew his tens of thousands. So they're like, if we don't get this guy right out of the gate, if we don't just stop him in his tracks right now, we're never going to get him, and David wins. And so out of that, I, I basically drew the conclusion that we serve a God who is known as the God of breakthrough, and it is his desire, it is his intention to give us breakthrough. And, and so when we pray, we do not pray, as Paul says, like a man beating the air. And yet many people do pray that way. And, and oftentimes it, it's not like they just came into the gym and they're like, they're more like, hey, hey, hey. well, that's hardly even beating the air. And so the Lord is not 
the Lord doesn't want us bored in prayer, and the Lord does not want us passionless in prayer. And for some of us, we need passion to overcome the boredom. For some of us, uh, we need a little excitement to, uh, you know, <laughs> enliven things a bit. But whichever way it comes, we, we want to be um, we want to be engaged and on the cutting edge. So again, that's about a longer than it needed to be a five-minute summary. Um, but there you go. So I want to talk about this idea of breakthrough prayer because I don't know that it's particularly well understood in, uh, in modern revivalist circles. We believe in prayer. I wouldn't dispute that. But in the 24th verse of the fourth chapter of Acts, the 24th verse of the fourth chapter of Acts, there's a very particular thing I want to point out, but again, the way to understand Scripture is in context. Don't just take a verse and lift it out of context. And so in Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John, and they've been summoned before the Sanhedrin, and they're in trouble because they've, they've prayed for a man who's been healed. And everybody knows this man. He's been crippled for years, and he's sat at the gate beautiful. The unanswered question, which the Bible just will have to find out in heaven, the unanswered question, of course, is why didn't Jesus heal him when he was on the earth? Because he would have walked by this guy more than once. I don't know. Maybe he left him for Peter and John to do this. I don't know. But anyway, um, there he was, and so they heal the man, and they end up in trouble. They end up before the Sanhedrin, before the powers that be. And they, uh, you know, they're called on the carpet for it. Um, they get out of that. And so Acts uh, 4.23 reads, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they prayed or said, Sovereign Lord, or Lord God Most High, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations or the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and speak your word and grant to your servants to, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, this is a model of breakthrough praying. It's not exactly what David did when he was at this battle in the Valley of Rephaim. There it seems that David sought the Lord and then called out to God based on that word and then went into battle. But these guys are going into battle too. It's a very different kind of battle. It doesn't involve any weaponry in the natural sense, but they are nevertheless dealing with the powers and the principalities that have stirred up all of this. Yes, God had a plan, but, but nevertheless, the evil powers were motivating Pontius Pilate and Herod, all these people. And so when they pray, they are praying for a breakthrough. And in this case, it's not just a localized battlefield. They are contending for a city and a nation. And, you know, I want to suggest to you that if you're here in New York City, and you are, <laughs> um, then you're in one of the most strategic places on earth. There's a lot of people that would be offended by what I'm going to say, but, but I'm going to say it anyway. For, for, for practical purposes in the United States of America, from a political and economic standpoint, there's only about six, maybe seven cities that matter. New York is one of those. And from a financial standpoint, there's nobody that holds a candle to New York. I mean, here you are across the street from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on Wall Street. I mean, you're, you're downtown, right? So I don't need to tell you guys that, but I, I want to reemphasize it, that what you are doing is you are, you are sent here on a mission. 
and it is a missionary activity, but it is also a mission in the sense that they would use in the military. You are sent with a task that needs to be fulfilled. And that task is to bring to bear the powers that would try to bring down this country. And in particular, your theater of operations probably has more to do with finance than with politics. There might be some political stuff in there. I don't get me wrong. I recognize the political influence and weight of both the city and state of New York. But, but there is nowhere in this country that has the, the, the center of gravity, the, the, the mass, the weightiness uh, that Wall Street has. And so, you know, your congregation is strategically placed. I, I, don't, I don't know everything that's going on with the church scene on the south end of Manhattan, but I'm willing to bet 20 bucks that there isn't a church like this one anywhere else on the south end of Manhattan. There are churches, but they are the other kind that are kind of sleepy and boring and ineffective and there's no passion. <laughs> that wouldn't be true of all of them, but when I said that, I had one particular landmark church uh, that George Washington used to attend uh, that people go to, and it's, it's more of a museum than anything else. That's really what I was thinking of, so please nobody get offended on behalf of the other genuine believers in lower Manhattan. All right, now that I dug that trench, let's get out of it. <laughs> All right, so these guys get out of the, uh, the, the, the uh, interview that they have been in with the Sanhedrin. And they go back to their own people. And they tell them what has gone on. These guys are trying to shut us down. They are trying to stop the move of God. And you know, at this time, there have been many people that have come to the Lord already. And there's been this noteworthy miracle that's happened with this, this man that everybody knows. And so it's on the front page of the Jerusalem Post. And so you know, th this is a hard thing to contain. And this is, this is what often happens when people are trying to stop a move of God. They will literally deny you or forbid you to speak any longer in that name. Can anybody relate to that? So how did they address that? They're in their own version of the Valley of Rephaim. Again, it's not that they're in literal battle, but, but they are being confronted and there is the earthly reality of these leaders, but there's also whatever it is that's behind them that's motivating everything that's going on. And so they go after that thing that motivates the leaders. You know, Paul says it this way, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against uh, principalities and powers, against thrones, dominions, and rulers and authorities against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. They're motivating the earthly world, but your real battle is not against your earthly seeming opponents. And so with that, I think it's much easier for us to love those who hate us, uh, to pray for those who despitefully use us, to uh, work on behalf of those who persecute us. And in so doing, we show the reality of Jesus in the world but that doesn't mean we are not in battle with what motivates those people. And so what they don't maybe realize is we literally are seeking to have Baal Peratzim or Yahweh Peratzim, the Lord of breakthroughs, breach the lines of those powers that motivate them and cut the legs out from underneath them. We do not go into battle just to mess around. We did, just like we don't go to pray just to pray. When we pray this kind of praying, we are seeking breakthrough and nothing other than breakthrough, and anything less than that isn't that. And I think sometimes we forget that. It's just like, yeah, yeah, show up at the prayer meeting, and then, hey, you want to go out to dinner afterward? And it's like, no, you know, afterward we're going to be taking blood off our swords and taking a shower to get all the gore and the, again, not literal battle, but, you know, we're, we're going to be... This is, this is serious work that we're engaged in. And so when these guys come back, they realize, okay, the fight's on. And so they hear the report of all that's gone on, and it says they lifted their voice together. Now, there's a couple things we can learn from this verse, and they're, they're important, very important. The first thing, uh, they were in one accord. And so this thing of unity is really important. If you're going to pray unto breakthrough and you're going to take lower Manhattan, 
it's a big enough place, I don't know if you could do it all the way to the north end of the island, but you might plant some other churches that'll help with that, right? Establish forts, outposts, but first you gotta take one area before you take the next, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. But if you're gonna do that, you've gotta be in unity. So if you guys have fights among yourselves, if you guys are contending and contentious with each other, remember this, your brother is never the enemy. The enemy is your enemy. So stop fighting your brother or your sister. And so they're, they're in one accord, and that means they have a common view. They have a common purpose. That's part of what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to give you a vision of what you are here to do. You are here to win. You're not here just to go to church. You're not here just to pray, and you're not here just to have a religious experience. That might all be going on, but you are here to win in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what does win look like? It looks like many people coming to faith. It looks like this building, this room being, there's a still a few empty chairs. There's no, there's no empty chairs, and you're filling up the lobby. And pretty soon you're having to do not two services, but three or four. And Bill and Tammy will have their tongues hanging out because they'll be exhausted <laughs> with all those church services. But real estate, it's hard to find in New York, so that's what you're going to do. And maybe you open a new one on Saturday, and you have another one on Friday for people who can't make it on Sunday, and da 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 but, but that's what winning looks like, and it's because people are coming to the Lord. Now, remember that when we talk about breakthrough, there's a misconception that's in the body of Christ right now. And I think I know where it came from, and it'd be too long to go into all of it right now because uh, it is a Sunday morning service, and at some point we've got to land the plane and get the kids out of Sunday school. <laughs> but the bottom line is most charismatic Christians have been sold a bill of goods, and I call it the atom bomb theory of revival. And that's to say, again, no one's looking for an atom bomb, but it's, it's a metaphor. It's like um, we think that some bomb is going to fall out of the sky, and when it detonates, suddenly all of lower Manhattan, on one day, in one hour, in one moment, they're going to fall on their face, confess Jesus as Lord, all the social problems are going to go away, crime is going to cease, stealing is going to stop, and everybody will be born again and we'll have a huge baptismal service. Amen. End of story. That's not generally how revival happens. I'm not saying there can't be big moves. 3,000 were brought to the Lord in one day in the book of Acts, and so that can happen. But 3,000 would be a drop in the bucket in New York. So what is, what's the real pattern that we see? Well, when Paul was in Ephesus, the scripture says that in two years, the entire province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, a province, think of that as like a state. So, and because this is the tri-state area, let's say this. In two years, um, not only did Manhattan hear the word of the Lord, but New York State, too, at least up the Hudson River Valley, and North Jersey, and Connecticut, Fairfield County, maybe even into Rhode Island and Western Massachusetts. There was that sort of an impact that hit the area, but it didn't just happen in a moment. There wasn't just one atom bomb that fell. It was a spreading effect. Jesus said the kingdom advances like leaven through a whole lump of dough. And in Paul's case, I mean, good luck matching Paul, but you got to start somewhere, right? It took him two years to see that revival come to such a degree that everybody in Asia, and I don't think Japan or Korea, it was wrong Asia, but everybody in Asia heard the word of the Lord. What would it take for everybody in Manhattan to hear the word of the Lord? What would that look like? How, how would we do that? Well, it's, it, it's probably not going to be just a one-shot, let's have a massive crusade in Battery Park and everybody's going to turn up, because there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't turn up. So you got to have different tactics. You might do the crusade in Battery Park, but you might preach the gospel from house to house or apartment to apartment. You know, in, in the Korean revival, <clears throat> Yonggi Cho built a church in Seoul that had a million people in it. One million people in one church. And you know what he did is he assigned people to their specific area where they already were placed. They lived there. And he might say, Christina, okay, you live on the 43rd floor of XYZ building. Um, so your theater of operations is going to be floors 43 up to 48 and from 43 down to 38. You've got 10 floors. And your job is to know every person on those floors, to, to evangelize them, to bring the kingdom to them, start a house church in your own place, maybe 
two floors up, two floors down. Um, get everybody healed, get them saved, get them delivered. That's your job. That's a rather activist vision of Christianity, don't you think? But if we're on a mission, and I don't mean like missionary, I mean like a military mission, that's how they do it in the military. You secure the area, you, you know, make sure that everything's kind of locked and buttoned down and blah, 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 blah. We need to have a comprehensive vision of what we expect God to do. When David went into the Valley of Rephaim, he wasn't like, ah, oh, let's just fight him to a draw. He's like, wipe them out, all of them. Oh, that's the emperor, sorry. <laughs> I'm channeling the emperor. Okay. So we, what we want is we want to see a sweeping move of God whereby people who have not even thought of God or they name other gods. Remember, David burned the gods of the Philistines. People who have named other gods are like, I'm done with that one. I don't want to do that anymore because I've seen that Jesus is more powerful. I've seen that Jesus is a better deal in street language. That's where they're going. So these guys back in the book of Acts, <clears throat> they realize, okay, here's how we're going to win this fight. We're going to start it in prayer. It's not a political campaign. It's not a letter writing thing. There's nothing wrong with politics, nothing wrong with writing letters. But fundamentally, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So they, they find this place of unity. We know what we're about. This is our mission. We're focused on that. And so the question is, are you focused on the greater mission of God in Manhattan? I think a lot of people, they go to church for many reasons. Sometimes they're looking for friendship. Sometimes they're looking for a marriage partner. Sometimes they're looking for counseling. Sometimes they're looking for job training, if it's a church that offers that kind of thing. They may be looking for food from the benevolence ministry. There's going to be a lot of reasons to go to church, some of which are better, some of which are worse. But fundamentally, what we are about is advancing the kingdom of God. And if that isn't kind of your whole priority in your life, something's wrong with your Christianity. And I'll say this too, you don't need to be in the ministry, you know, as Reverend so-and-so uh, to be doing this. For years before I was doing what I'm doing right now, I mean, I did it, but I kind of did it on the side. I had a regular job, and I worked regular hours, and I did a lot of preaching in the evenings and on weekends and led retreats, and I took my vacation time, not to go do what most people do on vacation, but maybe to lead ministry teams or do conferences overseas or whatever I was doing. But the point is, I always viewed myself as being in the ministry, except I was financing my own ministry. And if you think of your job as that, you might chafe at it a little less too, because you'd be like, oh, this is the Lord's provision for me to carry out the greater mission of Jesus. Does that make sense? So get that one accord, get that unity. You guys need to have that if you're going to be effective. Why did we lose in Vietnam? Fundamentally, we lost because there wasn't unity around our objective when we were there. And it was so bad, not just to what was happening in Washington, but I have one of my teachers when I was in high school, he had, he had served in Vietnam. And one day he was sitting in the tent with his commanding officer and somebody, an American soldier, threw a grenade into the tent. My friend dove behind the desk, the grenade went off, the fragments went into the desk. He was spared, but his commanding officer was killed. Well, sometimes that goes on in churches, too. And so we need that accord. We, ne we need to understand our enemy is the enemy, but our brother or our sister is not the enemy. And so let's stay focused on the mission. All right. Now they're coming together, and it says they're in one accord. They lift their voices together. Now, when we say we're lifting our voice, the way the more common way to say that in English is they raised their voice. But the, the, the thing that it, the scripture is unmistakably conveying to us is they got loud. Th this is not, oh Jesus, we pray for breakthrough. We just ask that you would move. This is like, Lord, we're calling in the airstrike. Light them up. Yes, Lord, we're asking for your power to come down over Manhattan. Lord, would you strike the hearts of people who are embittered and hardened and who are turned against you? 
Oh, God! Something like that. If your prayer meetings don't have passion and intensity, they're boring. And not only that, they won't bring you breakthrough most of the time. I'm not looking for soulish, fleshly volume, but here's what I do know. It's true in modern militaries, and it was true in David's time. Armies have known this forever, that if, when they are about to join battle, if they unite their voices, Anyone seen Braveheart? Anyone seen Gladiator? Well, what are they doing? They are raising their voices in one accord. And we need to be praying with that kind of intensity because we are not praying to pray. We are praying to break through because we have the Lord of breakthroughs on our side and it is his intention, according to Paul, based in Philippians, to crush Satan under our feet. We often don't use that kind of language because... It seems too combative, a little too militaristic, a little too full-on. And especially if you're a pacifist, you're like, whoa, hold on here. But remember, we're not looking to kill anybody. We're looking to bring people to Jesus and bring them eternal life. But we are not looking to fight this to a draw. We are looking to see the utter capitulation of darkness on our watch. Does that make sense? So these guys got loud. And um, I don't think they were getting loud to get loud. I think they got loud because they were genuinely excited. I think it, it arose from down here somewhere out of the passion and the fervor of, yes, the Lord has sent us here and it's tough and they are out to get us, but man, God, God called us to be Jesus' disciples and we are going to proclaim that truth come what may. God, we will not back up. We're going to stand our ground. I think there's that, that, I mean, I think the American church needs to get a little bit of that back in them. Without kind of falling to the fleshly carnality of some of what we saw in the last election cycle. So, <clears throat> what I'm describing, what I'm describing here is not the uh, kind of false excitement that often gets worked up in church circles, maybe where... I don't know, a leader, it might be the worship leader, it could be the pastor, it could be just somebody who's got a prophetic gift, but they, you know, they kind of exhort everybody, come on, everyone, let's stand up and really praise the Lord. Let's give Jesus a clap offering. I mean, this is not that. Right? This is, this is that thing, again, if you saw, if you saw the movie Gladiator, um, there's, at the opening scene, you know, all of the soldiers are lined up, and Maximus says to Quintus, he says, at my signal, unleash hell. Well, we don't want to unleash hell, but we do want to unleash heaven. <laughs> and we are made to be kingdom carriers. We are made to bring the kingdom of God. We do want to unleash heaven. And we need to have that kind of intensity. In another place in that movie, if you've seen it, you know the storyline, but there's a, you know, a revolt going on, and the emperor is a corrupt emperor. And Maximus says, well, if you can just get my men back, you will see what they will do. And the point is that the, the emperor had dispersed those men that were loyal to Maximus. But he says, if you can put them under my command again, they will rise and they will fight. And I think we need that kind of you know, sentiment in what we're doing. Again, we're not here to mess around. You guys are here to take Manhattan. You have been stationed here by the commander of the armies of heaven in New York with a strategic intention that New York would bow its knee to Jesus. And that's going to happen you know, over, all over the, the whole region. But don't expect it to be an atom bomb thing. It's not like we're just going to walk out of here and it's all going to happen today or tomorrow. There's going to be a, a, an advancement that happens. The kingdom will come like leaven. There needs to be a system. There needs to be intentionality. Believe it or not, there even needs to be some planning. It takes resources and planning and organization to fight a war, spiritual or otherwise. So this loudness comes from, <clears throat> from the excitement and the sense of overcoming a challenge that wells up from the depths of the soul. Now, this is New York, so this doesn't need much elaboration, but uh, you know, when the Yankees are doing well, or I guess we could talk about football, but whatever, you guys get the idea. Um, 
You know, when there's a play that excites the crowd, nobody says, okay, let's, let's applaud now. It's like everybody just comes right up out of their seat and they're like, Rah! right? People are holding their beer cup in the air. You know, they're throwing popcorn or whatever they're doing. But they're, they're cheering. They're applauding. So it, it comes out of what you, who you are. Well, of course, we're New Yorkers and we support the Yankees. Unless we support the Mets. But anyway, that's a different. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? You get the idea. You know, there's some towns they don't really back their teams, but you guys do. And so you, you understand what this dynamic looks like. So people come right up out of their seats. They're shouting. They're screaming. They're chanting. They have their hands in the air with a V for victory sign. But they're exploiting with enthusiasm, and that's what Luke is describing in this passage. Do you pray like that? Do you expect like that? You know, when I was, when I was traveling in Australia heavily in the Australian outpouring, I was going all over that country, and, you know, it's a continent that's an island, and so literally I went coast to coast and all around the, you know, and I went into a lot of places that Australians didn't even know they existed, um, but I was also in the major cities that everybody knows about them, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, et cetera. But anyway, when I was doing all of that, um, I, I don't even know, was it a word from the Lord? Was it something, you know, just a, I came up with? I don't know, but... Anyway, this is something I learned, and I've said it many times, but I've not said it much lately, and I want to I put it back on the table. Expectation is the combustible fuel of faith. And, Bill, you said something about expectation this morning. And, and I'll tell you something. Expectation is combustible. When there's a room full of expectation, it's like, it's like if there's natural gas in there and you strike a match, that's what you want. That is actually what you want in a spiritually charged environment. I'm aware of the risks of it becoming too enthusiastic and people getting in the flesh and all that, but you know what? God spare us, God spare us from the curse of low expectations. I would far rather that it be too expectant and we somehow just need to titrate it a little bit, but that the air-fuel mixture is rich enough that if you just duck, boom, the Lord is moving. We want that. And anything less than that isn't that. Now, what I'm describing to you is not your typical prayer meeting that we see in most churches, even if they are, you know, so-called renewed churches or uh, third wave, fourth wave, river stream, you know, type churches. Now, I'm not here to throw rocks, so let me, let me throw rocks at my own group. Um, I just finished a conference here in Manhattan, and on the first night, uh, Friday night, um, I gathered with my prayer team downstairs in the church, and we went to pray. And I was like, okay, guys, let's let's pray. And I didn't give them all of the stuff that I'm giving you, but I said, you know, I want you to pray confidently and expectantly. And this is my own team, and they're all like, yes, Jesus, we just pray you bless them. And, you know, we just ask you to move on them. And I'm like, I'm going to fall asleep in this prayer meeting. Like, Nothing's going to happen here. And in my heart, I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, I want to call in an airstrike on this building. That there be nothing left but smoking rubble because the power hit the building and everybody was touched by God. And I started, I led with a prayer like that, hoping it would lead to some sort of spontaneous combustion. But it didn't happen. And so I kind of well looked at the time and I was like, well, let's just go upstairs and do the meeting. Because I had to, I had to be on the clock and... We didn't have time to sort of, okay, let's do a redo on that, guys. But I know how it works. I know what it is to be tired, cold, wet, or the equivalent thereof. I know what it is to be caught up in the affairs of this life. Work is hard. Things aren't going well at home. Uh, you know, whatever. The car broke down. My dog is sick. Any of it. I know what that is. But, you know, when you're a soldier, when you're in, when you're in battle, you've got to press through that stuff. I often tell the story of my daughter, Anastasia, not that I brag about her, but um, she's in the Army, and uh, she was the 31st woman in the history of this nation to become an Army Ranger. And just in case anybody's wondering, it's actually harder to be a Ranger than it is to become a SEAL. Everybody knows who the SEALs are, but they have better marketing. <laughs> it's true. And uh, so she, she was the 31st woman to make it. Um, lots of people flunk out. Not many women even try. They're generally discouraged, but anyway, she made it. But she didn't just make it right through. It took her six months to complete that training. 
If everything goes perfectly, you can do it in three months. But she caught pneumonia in the middle of it because of an all-night march through a snowstorm. And so she had to recover. And you know, there was some stuff like that along the way. But you know what? She kept marching. She kept going. And, and I think we need a little bit of that in the modern church. And, and so I, I often think of her <clears throat> when I think of what I'm suggesting to you. Well, a lot of times <clears throat> we don't pray together very much if we do it at all. I was actually talking with a friend recently who's a pastor, and he said, I think the single hardest thing to get Christians to do in at least his church, he said, is to get them to pray. He said, we can get them to come to meetings or, you know, conferences or, you know, if there's a training, we, they might come out to that. But to get them to pray, now that's something different. You guys have a, what do you call it, an all-night prayer meeting? What did you, you had a name for it. The burn. Well, so everybody come out and get on fire. Prepare to be tired the next day. That's the way it's going to be. But but if you will pray, and not just, again, you're sitting here at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, Lord. <laughs> pray really like. Oh, right. That, that's not the praying I'm talking about. If you have to, march around, walk around to stay awake. But pray with that fervor and that intensity. All right. So sometimes people, <laughs> depending on when it is, I might. I, I, I need to look at my calendar, but I was, I was tempted. I definitely was. So a lot of times Christians don't pray together very much, but it reflects the individualism of modern society. And in contrast to that, and you see it right here in this passage in, in Acts, most of New Testament praying is corporate. It's together. It's not that they didn't pray alone. Is that a cricket? Am I hearing a cricket? <laughs> Are there crickets in lower Manhattan? Okay. Anyway. Um, so we don't, want, we don't want board praying. We don't want, you know, body language that suggests we're not into it. We don't want a room that's lacking in energy. We want expectation, and we want it to be combustible. Because without that combustible expectation, not much comes out of those prayer meetings. I mean, I guess in the eternal sense, there probably is some value in it. But you tend not to see breakthrough. And again, we are not praying just to pray. We are praying unto breakthrough. We are here with a mission. We are here to convert people. We are here to build churches. We are here to empower and equip the saints so that they can carry out the work of the ministry. That's what we are here to do. So again, let's stay clear about what, our, what we're all about. And so um, I'm not advocating for poor manners, but the other thing that we see in this, in this passage is when they lifted their voices, they did it together. Now, the word there in Greek is symphonia, and if it sounds like symphony, it should. And in a symphony, there is, again, a unifying theme, but, you know, the strings are doing one thing, and you might even have, like, the cellos doing something a little different from the violins or whatever. Uh, so the strings are doing this, and the, the brass is doing this, and the percussion is doing this. And, but it's all got something that's unified, and there can be a rising and falling crescendo, a theme that recurs, like in a fugue, where there's one particular kind of, you know, bar of music that over and over gets repeated. This is the sort of dynamic that begins to emerge, and it's because of this symphonia effect. And for it to work, everybody needs to be praying together. I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for individualized prayer. You know, here's the mic. People come up, pray your prayers individually. That can be part of the mix. But the part that's most missing in Western praying, and this is why I'm pointing it out, is when everybody is praying together around the same theme and and we're not trying to be rude here. We're not trying to walk all over each other. But in a lot of church circles, this would be highly offensive because, well, you know, everything has to be decent and in order. Well, it's decent and in order in a symphony when all the instruments are playing together, isn't it? So why isn't it decent and in order when everybody's praying together around a unified theme unto breakthrough? That's how military units fight. The artillery is, you know, bringing in the, the medium-range firepower. The helicopters and the planes are dropping ordnance from the air. The tanks are going forward with the infantry behind them. But the whole thing is to overwhelm them and to defeat the enemy. 
And if you will pray in symphonia like this, you will tend to see breakthrough. I remember one time teaching on this concept, but not this message. And I was in uh, Western Australia, and I it was a smaller meeting this, but smaller meeting than this one. I broke the people down into um, kind of groups, and I said, "Here's what I want you to do. Each of your groups, I want you to figure out among yourselves what is the breakthrough that God wants you to pray into." And this table doesn't need to have this one's objective. You're all here with a wider, you know, theater-wide objective, but but what you eight are assigned may not be what you ten are assigned, right? And so, but you've got to get that unity before you even begin to pray. And so they, you know, they did it. Some of them thrashed around a little bit. They had never had anybody give them an assignment like this, but but presently they they sort of got it done. And then at the end, I said, okay, table one, you know, what did you guys pray about? Table two, what did you guys, and so on. And what was remarkable was several of them had really strategic things, one of which was uh, that there, there was a huge problem with opiates um, in that district in Western Australia. It was estimated by the federal police that one in three homes was being impacted by opiate abuse. And so one of the things they prayed against was drug use and opiate abuse in their district. That was a weekend event, and I did that exercise on a Friday night. The next morning, there was a news report that the federal police had um, busted the largest opium and opioid smuggling ring in the history of the nation, and they took into custody more than 50 tons of opiates. Did they get a breakthrough? Absolutely. Could you have that in Manhattan? Yes, you could. And it could be with drugs. It could be with trafficking. It could be porn. It could be salvations. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that this could involve. Just pick your objectives. All right, so again, I'm not talking about manufactured enthusiasm, but I am talking about that, that focused intention because we're praying in symphonia, and, it, and with it comes the confidence that our prayers literally can move heaven and earth. And if you're sitting out there right now listening to me say that, and you're like, well, I'm not so sure, you are the problem. You literally need a shift in your mindset and the engagement level with which you're operating. Because now you're just playing church, you're not being the church. And so with all of that, that confidence will spill over into excitement, yeah, volume, and a sense of the imminent release of God's kingdom power. It will make the earth move. And guess what? It says right here in the passage, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I've had a couple of prayer meetings like this in my life where I was not in earthquake country. One was in London, uh, and the other was here in the United States, but not in California. And literally, when we finished praying together in Symphonia, and it was kind of an extended time of prayer, literally, the earth was shaking. We, we literally felt the building shaking. I'm not saying it's going to happen every time, but, but if you've never had that happen, you, you, you have no grid by which to assess what I'm describing. So we don't want the earth to shake in order to shake, but it's more of a sign that, okay, our, our prayers have moved heaven and earth, and as a sign, we're seeing the earth move, and with it, we expect heaven's going to move too. And with it, the refame are going to be defeated. And with it, the powers that we are coming against that create all of this havoc in our society, they are going to be defeated. All right, well, the other thing I want to point out about this is that in these passages, we have this other word, and it is usually translated together. The Greek word is homothumadon. And it's a unique word that is a compound of two words. Homo, we know what homo means. It, it, it's one. There's homogenized milk or homosexual or whatever. But we know what homo means. It's, we use it even in English, even though it's ultimately of the Greek derivation. And then um, thumadon has to do with the idea of rushing along. So it's unified rushing along. And so, again, this image is musical, and it's the idea of notes which are maybe different, but they're in harmony. We don't do a lot of harmony-type singing in modern worship. 
but in other times of the church, harmony singing was an important part of the hymnody in worship. And so people would sing the melody, but others would sing the harmony, and it created a, an amazing effect. If you've ever been in anything like that, it's, I'd like to suggest we need harmony to come back into our modern worship, but, but the way we do it and with the instruments and everything, it, it can be hard. But anyway, so, so there's like a harmonizing that's going on, and that word, by the way, occurs 12 times in the New Testament, and 10 of them are in the book of Acts. So if you've ever been in a prayer meeting of this kind, uh, you know the effect. And it's very difficult to convey it through words, but it's, it's kind of an overwhelming sense that you're, you're almost drunk in the spirit with the presence of God, and you do have a sense of we're being carried along, and the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And it can go on for a while, and when people come out of there, they're like, wow, that was amazing. That's really what goes on. So it goes without saying that when, uh, when these symphony-type things are going on, when homothumadon is happening, it goes without saying the instruments have to be in tune. There is the underlying theme I've already spoken of. And there is something to which we return continuously. And so it's complex, it's melodious, and it's woven together in its intricacy. And it's like being caught in the current of a river that is powerful, unyielding, and irresistible. So a lot of people are looking to have an experience with God. Let that one be your next objective. And with that, this kind of praying is like a furnace in which the various flames ascend together, mingling their heat into a flame that grows hotter and hotter and it can ultimately melt any metal known to mankind including steel you know, some of the kind of modern furnaces that they've built for metallurgical purposes they can have flames up to like 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit in the past you couldn't get that hot but they can do it using modern technology and I don't care what you throw in there titanium steel cause any of it, it's all just it's gonna melt and so we want that kind of power in our praying that nothing can withstand it. Nothing can withstand it. You know, we see a, a model of this not just in Acts. This is more of an individualized one. But Jesus, he prays for 40 days in the wilderness. And when he comes out of the wilderness, nothing can withstand the kingdom that he is carrying. And so word goes out everywhere. He walks into a church. Demons begin manifesting. The sick come. They get healed. Great crowds are drawn to him. Many are being baptized. He doesn't really do the baptizing. The disciples do, but that's okay. He's busy doing the preaching and you know, fueling this thing. Jesus had that effect going on in his ministry. And in this world, we are to be like him. So all of this uh, that that goes with homothumadon, it can't be commanded by a leader. It's something that arises from the, the, the joint spirit among the people. Um, it's not the suppression of people's wills in order to create an artificial, humanly conceived unity. It's rather enlivening people's souls in which they come together voluntarily with a common understanding and a common purpose or vision. And it's what we usually refer to as fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. But underneath all of it is sort of a deep affection and friendship among people who are associated in this manner. And, you know, they say that there's no friendship on earth like those who have been in battle together, the esprit de corps of soldiers. I would beg to differ. I think there is a comparable effect that happens when we have spiritual triumph as well. And I often see it among my ministry teams as we travel. We often saw it in the old days under John Wimber. So I would say that we can have a comparable thing through this in the church. And this is what David spoke of, how blessed it is and pleasant uh, when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like oil, the Holy Spirit, coming down upon us and running down upon the beard of Aaron and upon the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And it is there that the Lord commands the blessing forevermore. This is how you move into the realm of blessing which is the realm of breakthrough, where you, are in, where you are collaborating with the Lord God. And so as you think about everything I've said, what we're really suggesting is that um, we need passion. And so voices lift together in unity, that conveys passion. And for a lot of people, passion is off-putting because we live in a society where 
other than at sporting events, you're not really supposed to show passion. In fact, you're not even these days supposed to cry at funerals. You're supposed to sit there stoically, and then you know when you get home, you can fall apart in your in private. But please, none of that private weeping. And, and we sure don't want you getting too excited in church or. You know, don't get excited at work. They'll call the security on you because they think you're suddenly gone loony and you're dangerous. A couple of you just went like this, like I've been there and seen it, right? So, so we know that we kind of live in this world where honestly the worldly thinking that we are subjected to, the powers that are arrayed against us, the one thing they're trying to do is squash us down so that we don't rise up into passion. And so now that you know that you're actually under attack in that area, what do you want to do? Counterattack. Rise up and let that passion rise. Well, I think it's time to unplug the wells of prayer and rediscover the power of passionate, unified prayer. Your burn would be a good place to do it, but this room might be a good place to do it too. And if we can get comfortable with that idea, we may actually see the release of many things that we've talked about, longed for, and prayed with, I'll say, more passivity than I am suggesting. Uh, and we may actually begin to see things move. And so I already said the result of this praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they also prayed for healing and signs and wonders. And if you read chapter 5, which follows chapter 4, funny how that works, that's what they had. They had a breakout of signs and wonders. And so with that, the Lord released his hand, and many great things happened. Well, Why not find a friend or two, maybe this week, even before the burn? Nowadays, we have modern communications. They couldn't do this. Get on Zoom or just call on the phone and maybe try praying like that or gather someplace. I don't know. There's places you could do it. Go down to Battery Park. You said the church is open during the day sometimes. There you go. Some of you got to work, but if you can sneak out for your lunch hour, if you work in the Wall Street area, come over for 30 minutes or an hour. But whether you do it in person or over the phone or using Skype or FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, we can do this. And I believe if we will do it, God will meet our passion. And he will meet our unity. He will put his oil upon it. He will tear the heavens open. And we will see breakthrough in our families, in our ministries, in our communities, and in this nation. Remember what I said. You are one of the six most important cities in the country. Depending on what you're measuring, you are the most important city in the country. So the Lord says this, and I think we should take it to heart. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Well, before we ask for the nations, how about let's just ask for a city, and let's have him deliver it into our hands. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's all stand. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.